Welcome to this uh, Sunday after Easter as we've been worshiping together. We uh, come to the sermon, and in these sermons for this week and next week, John has a couple of stories of people who saw Jesus and met Jesus after his resurrection. Our first one today is uh, Doubting Thomas, and the one next week will be when he confronts Peter on the beach. And the sermon today is about Doubting Thomas, and uh, probably people use that in society as just a phrase, oh, he's a Doubting Thomas, maybe without really knowing what the story was about. So today we're going to learn more about that, and we're going to figure out who this Doubting Thomas was, and whether that was actually a bad or a good thing. So let's start here. I was thinking this week, if I were to ask you, why do you believe in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, what would you say? What, what's your reason for believing? Or maybe this morning you're not a believer. You're kind of maybe in progress. Maybe you're wondering about it. What would it take to convince you this morning that God is real, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that the Holy Spirit um, actually has come and can live with us? And I was thinking about that for myself, and I thought, well, what is it? Well, I'm a pretty logical person. So for me, uh, I like the fact that archaeology, I like the fact that history, I like the fact that the, the documents all add up. But even so, there's still a gap. And I think that gap is just filled with this sort of inner conviction. And I don't know how to describe it. Uh, there was an old beer commercial, which probably is not how you're supposed to have talk about faith, but the beer commercial said, when it's right, you know it. And I just have always kind of felt that there's something of that in there as well. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what would cause you to believe or what caused you to believe. Maybe it's as simple as your parents believed. Maybe it's as simple as the fact you were raised in this, or maybe it's as simple as the fact that you have a spouse or someone significant and you're kind of going along with them. But all of us need some reason to believe. I knew a man once who was uh, really, really close to becoming a Christian and believing, but, but he still had that little bit of doubt. And so he said to God, uh, Christmas time in Surrey, in Vancouver, he said, if you can find me a spot by the door, a parking spot by the door at a busy mall by by Christmas time here, I'll believe. He went to the mall, and there was the spot by the door. He said to himself, ah, that's a coincidence. So he asked again. He said, God, another time, parking spot by the door, busy season, right by the mall, I'll believe. And again, he showed up, and there it was. And he said, at that moment, I just had to believe. And then he kind of looked at me and said, ah, you know, Kind of sometimes wish I hadn't because I was getting really good parking spots and they stopped the moment I believed. But anyway, whatever it is, there's something that causes us to believe. There's something that, that convinces us that it's okay to believe and to trust. And for Thomas to believe, he wanted concrete facts. Now we're going to read his story in a minute, but we got a bit of introduction before we get there. But he wanted to see and touch. He didn't want to be part of a mass hoax or, you know, scam or, or something like that. We call him Doubting Thomas, but don't we all want to know that what we believe in is real? And John, at this point, kind of gives us the reason why he wrote his book, and it's exactly for that reason. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples 
which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in other words, John was written to give us the assurance that we could believe in God, that we can believe in Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again. And There's probably like a million reasons why you might doubt that or why you might believe that. But I think you could probably put all those million reasons into two big buckets. And the first of those buckets is simply evidence. There's some factual basis for this. We want facts like I do, like history and archaeology and documents. We want to be like Thomas. Just show me the facts. Prove it to me. And when John writes a letter to the church, um, which we call 1 John, he writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, again, the purpose, you too may have fellowship with us. In other words, John says, I'm writing you this gospel, I'm writing you these letters, and he will write us the book of Revelation, all of it to help us understand what we can base our beliefs and our relationship with God on. And he starts out with those ideas of facts. But then secondly, the other bucket, if the first bucket is evidence or facts, the second bucket is faith. And if the first bucket is full of hard, sharp objects that you can wrap your hands around, faith is just really hard to even define. We just know it's true. We feel the evidence only gets us so far, and then there comes this gap. And there's some kind of inner assurance that comes. That this is true. It's not something we can prove. We take it by faith. We take some sort of a leap of faith and believe. So again, before we get to the story of, of Thomas, we're just trying to clear out some ground here to, to understand the story the way John wrote it. And the question comes then, well, if we want facts and evidence, is the book of John true? Many scholars today, if you read uh, some of the literature that's out there, they just say because John is so different than the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that maybe it isn't true. Now, they don't always believe that the other Gospels are true either, but, but the question comes, as Pilate said, well, what is truth? What would it mean for the Gospel of John to be true? Well, let's go back to a story about... Uh, the movie The Butler. So the, a movie came out a number of years ago called The Butler, and it was about a man who had been a butler in the White House for 34 years. And what caught my attention is when I was watching the movie was when it started, it said, based on a true story, and then it said, based on an article from the Washington Post. Well, I love the Washington Post, but when someone says a whole movie is based on one article, I started to wonder how true 
is true. So when I got home, I looked it up. I looked up the backstory of the movie, and sure enough, it was true. In the sense that there was a man by the name of Eugene Allen. He'd been a butler at the White House for 34 years. He'd served through eight administrations. But it was so loosely based on his life that, that even the people writing the kind of article trying to figure out what was true and what wasn't had trouble figuring it out sometimes. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff that was there for dramatic effect. They, he had a child, and in the movie, he was a Black Panther who later became a, uh, an elected official, but in real life, he was neither. Uh, there was stuff about his wife. There was stuff about his own um, ancestry, even stuff about where he was born. None of it was accurate to Eugene Allen. Now, what you experienced from the movie is what it was like at that time. It was the time of the Vietnam War. It was the time of the Civil Rights Movement. It was all this stuff, and he was an African-American man in the White House. It was true to the time. It was true to a man like him, what an African-American man in that kind of a position would experience. It just wasn't the story of Eugene Allen. And so the question comes, is that what John did? Did John create a story to carry his theology? He wanted to teach us something, and so he created Jesus in a sense. And he put all these stories in because he was like telling a parable. He was trying to make a point. And the question this morning is simply this, was it true? Is there any evidence in the Gospel of John that could convince us? And I think that's where we have to hear what John says himself. What John says in his Gospel, in his letter, is that indeed this is true in a historical sense. It's about what he saw, what he touched, what he felt what he heard. And so the question comes then, as again, we're just clearing ground to hear the story properly. Well, if John is true, why is it written this way? Why is it written so differently? Because now that we're getting towards the end, we have one more sermon after today on this. Why have we seen so many stories in John that we don't find in the other Gospels? And why are we so many stories in the other Gospels that we don't find in John? And I think the answer to that is John is just simply trying to answer a different question than what the other Gospels are trying to answer. Now, John knows that the other Gospels were all written before him, and everybody has read those or heard those in sermons. And his Gospel is not the first one they're going to read. They're reading it against that. And to me, John is sort of a jazz version of those Gospels. He is riffing, and he is kind of counterpointing, and he's doing a bunch of different stuff to those original Gospels. But he's also answering a subtly different question. The other Gospels are answering the question, is Jesus God? Mark and Luke especially, is Jesus the Son of God? Was he God? Did he come down to earth? Is he God? What John is trying to answer is, is the Messiah we've been expecting this Jesus? It's a little bit the same question that Matthew's asking and trying to answer. And Matthew, in his gospel, really paints Jesus as a new Moses. He has a, all kinds of things in there that, that make you remember Moses. 
And he's painting Jesus as the prophet who Moses said would come and follow him. But John is answering this question, is the Messiah that we expected this Jesus? And so the Jews of Jesus' day had this expectation that God was going to send someone. And this someone was going to come and rescue them in some way. Deuteronomy called him the prophet. And in the beginning of John, you remember, are you the prophet? They asked uh, John the Baptist. Daniel called him the son of man. And Jesus refers to himself as the son of man continually throughout the gospel. The prophets in general called him the Messiah or the son of God. And throughout the gospel, I think John is just trying to show that Jesus is the person that God said he would send who was going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple, the fulfillment of the sacrifices, the fulfillment of the feasts, all that stuff that we've seen in John. Is John trying to say that Jesus is this prophet that God was sending, who is more than a prophet, but actually the son of God? And he comes not to rescue Israel just politically, but he comes to defeat Satan on the cross. He comes to... Rescue people from slavery to sin, and he comes to begin God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so John tells this story of Jesus through this lens, stressing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the feasts, how he was coming. So far from writing creative fiction, what John is doing is he's showing who the historical Jesus was and how what he did fulfilled what, Jesus, what God predicted in the Old Testament. So now we come to Thomas. So now we start to understand what is the question that Thomas is asking in his mind he is not asking, is Jesus the Son of God? That was not the question for him. He was trying to answer the question in his own mind, do I believe that this Jesus who I knew was the Messiah that God had promised from the Old Testament? And John wraps up with this story. He's told the story of Jesus appearing to Mary, as we saw on Easter Sunday, and the disciples. But he has this one more story of Jesus appearing to this disciple, kind of points him and allows him to explain why he wrote his gospel. But it's also because John wrote this maybe 60 years after the fact, living in Ephesus to a bunch of people who had never seen Jesus alive in the flesh, but like us were believing because of what they'd heard. And so he has this last character who doesn't see Jesus either. And it's sort of the typical person of John's day now. How does someone who did not see Jesus in the flesh believe? And that's where Thomas comes in. Let's read the story. Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin, or Didymus. Uh, that would have been his uh, Greek name. And he wasn't with them when Jesus came the first time, eight days before. But the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, 
the mark of the nails. Place my finger in the marks of the nails. Place my hand in his side. I will never believe. In other words, I want concrete evidence that I can touch. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And it's that last line that points to us. It's that last line that says, What would it take for you to believe that Jesus really is what God had promised in the Old Testament, the, the, his son who he would send into the world. And Thomas was just simply looking for evidence. He's like our secular friends, and he's probably like us, that we want facts at the basis of all this stuff. Prove it to me and I'll believe. I was just thinking again about Herod and Jesus Christ Superstar, that wonderful song he sings, Prove to me that you're divine. Change this water into wine. And it's this whole idea that if God would just do a miracle for me and just prove himself to me, I would believe. And what Jesus confronts Thomas with is the fact that facts will never be enough to get you to believe. There's always going to be a gap that you can only kind of cover with some sort of leap of faith. Seeing a miracle will not cause anyone to come to faith. There can always be an explanation. We had a friend in our last church who was 20-something years old and had breast cancer, and we prayed for her, and she was going to have surgery, and when they took the last x-rays before the surgery, she was healed. No trace of anything on there. And, and she turned to the doctor, and she said, how do you explain that? She said, I think I was prayed for and I was healed. And the doctor just looked at her and she said, well, yeah, some people believe that. We just call it spontaneous remission. And a miracle that happened in front of her eyes didn't lead her to any form of belief because there's always a gap. And facts will only take us so far as Thomas discovers It's dangerous to only believe the facts. There has to be faith. You have to realize that if you want, you're going to wait to believe in God until you have all the facts and it's proved. Well, that isn't faith. Faith is a little bit of a leap. There's always a gap. But the other side of that is also true. It is dangerous to only have blind faith. We become gullible and susceptible to any idea that's floating around. We believe because someone important in our life believes, a parent or someone else. We believe because we want to believe. We believe because we hope that if we do, something will happen. And the challenge of that without having any grounding in fact is that then we get to be shaped by everybody else's idea because we have nothing to measure it against. And so John wrote down his experience with Jesus. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so John presents evidence, but he also calls for belief. And he knows, as, as that last sentence in that Jesus talking to Thomas said, there's going to be those who don't get to see. And they're not going to have all their uh, desires for facts and evidence met. And the question is, will you be able to believe without being 100% certain? Soren Kierkegaard, who was a philosopher of another age, said Christianity is a leap of faith into the dark. As he described this gap, he says what you have to do is you have to be willing to take this leap of faith into the dark. You have to be willing to risk it in order to really have this relationship with God. And I think he's half right. But John would say, no, you're only half right. It is a leap of faith. But there are facts to be accounted for. For us, there's the evidence of the Gospels. There's the evidence of the early church, how these disciples changed from these frightened people at Easter to the brave people who started a church in the Roman Empire, who suffered persecution and, and were sacrificed as Peter was, or uh, James with his head cut off. Something happened to them that significantly changed their lives. And there's the evidence of our own transformation or the transformation of others where we can talk about how God has made a difference in our lives as well. It doesn't prove it, but it provides a basis for it. So Kierkegaard said Christianity is a, step of a leap of faith in the dark. But in that both and of fact and belief, I don't think it's a leap of faith into the dark, but it is a leap of faith, as I've been saying throughout the sermon. But it's a leap of faith into the arms of our loving Father. It's a leap of faith based on the evidence that we have that gets us almost there. But then the leap of faith comes. And what does a leap of faith into the arms of a loving Father look like? Well, I can tell you that because I've experienced that. At our last church, we met in a school. The school had a stage about like ours, a little higher maybe, but about this height, three feet maybe. And uh, our girls then were preschool and early elementary. And what they loved to do was go running off the end of the stage and jump into my arms. Back then I was young and I could catch them. Back then they were small and I, <laughs> they could fly, you know. And I would be talking to someone. I'd have my back to the stage and all of a sudden I'd hear, Daddy! And I'd turn around and 50 pounds of flying humanity would come crashing into my arms. And they had no fear in doing that because they had complete confidence that I would catch them. My prayer is that they've got smarter since then. But it's this leap of faith. It wasn't a leap of faith into the dark. It wasn't, I sure hope there's someone out there. It was, I know my father's there and he will catch me. And they just ran and leapt. And I think that's the story of Thomas. I think that's the story of us. And I think that's the story of faith. Starting from, I won't believe until you prove it to me. Thomas ends with the greatest affirmation in the book of John. My Lord and my God. He is the only one in that whole book who calls Jesus my God. And Jesus said, blessed are those who believe, but don't see. Blessed are those who believe, but don't have the proof fully in front of them. And Paul described it this way in Romans. He said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. 
when John, the writer of this gospel, came to the empty tomb on Easter morning, says he saw and he believed. When Mary came to faith at the end of that sermon we were looking at last week, she says, I have seen the Lord. Thomas actually does get to see God, but then God says, but you will be one of the last people who will get that kind of assurance. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. And what Paul says is, it's not that we believe without facts, it's that we now believe by hearing. And in Paul's day, everybody read aloud. So few people could read, few people had anything to read, but no one could read quietly. So this idea of learning by hearing is whether you read or whether you heard somebody, it was always by hearing. And so as we read the Gospel of John, as we hear sermons on it, Paul says, you have what you need for faith in there. Listen to the truth. Allow God to work in your hearts. Allow His Word to speak to you. Then take that leap of faith into the arms of your loving Father. So at the end of the day, what am I trying to say? I think simply this. If you want to believe in God for the first time, or if you want to grow in God and believe more deeply in Him and, and grow more into that faith, you have to be hearing from God. If you want to come to faith, let me suggest, read the Gospels. Read the New Testament. Read the Old Testament. Read the Bible and hear what God is saying. But if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to continue in your walk with God, listen and read as well. I've had a challenging week. I've had this one thing in my life that has caused me to lose sleep and has just caused me a lot of anxiety. It's just part of the moving process, and it was just something I was just struggling with. And I was at our small group last night, and we're studying the Gospel of John, and uh, we were looking at that story of the, uh, the blind man who gets healed. And as we were reading that story, God just kept reminding me of who he is. And God kept reminding me of a, if the one who can heal the blind man is at work in my life, why is my problem so much bigger? And I just felt God's encouragement and His strength. And, and today is a different day for me. Because I listened to God. And I just encourage you, read your Bible. Join a small group. Listen to sermons. Allow God to build you up. And if there's anyone in your life that's searching for God, or if you're searching for God this morning, let me encourage you. It's not about... You know, we need to get the basic facts there. But God breaks in through His Word. God breaks in as we read Scripture, as we listen for Him, as we allow His Holy Spirit to be at work in us. We can't prove the Gospel. We can't prove the Bible. We can't prove God. At the end of the day, there's always going to be a leap of faith into His arms. But when we hear His voice, that's when that miracle happens, where that inner conviction comes. And like Thomas, we get drawn from doubting to believe. I have a book by an old Pentecostal preacher, and he said, you know, if the secret of the Christian life is to read the red and pray for the power. 
Read the red, uh, words of Jesus in red in the Bible. Read the words of Jesus. I would say read the whole Bible because the whole Bible is the word of Jesus. Pray for God's power. Pray for God's Holy Spirit. Pray for God to speak to you through that. And as we do that, then we become convinced for the right reasons that God is God, that Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again on the third day, that God's Holy Spirit can come and live within us, that we can be forgiven and have the promise of eternity. As we listen for God's word, as we wait for his spirit to be at work, as we put ourselves in the right place, God can do this. Thomas wanted complete faith, so his doubting was wrong. But he was right in the fact that he needed a basic grounding in facts for his faith to be real. And then comes that leap of faith into our Father's arms, that listening to his voice, that inner assurance that comes, that this is the voice of God speaking to me. And then we take that leap. And we end safely in the arms of God. Now and for eternity. Father God, this morning we thank you for the promise that this book that we've been looking at for the past four months is true. It isn't just a parable. It's not just a story that's been woven around some facts. It is your truth for us. And we thank you, Lord, that through your word and through your spirit, you can help us to become convinced, faithful people. That you can help us to take that leap of faith to believe in you, to follow you, to trust your voice when it prompts us to do things. So we thank you this morning for the story of Doubting Thomas. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be your people who hear your voice, who know your truth, and who act for you in this world to make a difference. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.